Hey everyone, welcome back to Pocket Size Pathophys, a podcast from theparamedicute.com. This is Warren, and today we're going to be discussing hyperglycemic crisis. Okay, definition time. Hyperglycemic crisis is a complication of diabetes mellitus, where there is a significant elevation in blood sugar levels. Hyperglycemia is a common occurrence in diabetes patients. But in hyperglycemic crisis, we're talking about blood sugar levels that are double to sometimes 10 times what is considered a normal blood sugar level. These conditions are characterized by severe dehydration and quite a significant electrolyte imbalance. There are two conditions that fall under this umbrella, diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a rapid onset resulting in an acidotic state and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome which is a more insidious version of hyperglycemic crisis and does not present with an acidotic state. Both conditions pose an acute life threat and any patients presenting with these conditions must be deemed critical. Just so you guys know I've done a separate episode on diabetes mellitus and metabolism of sugars and other substrates. That would be handy information coming into this episode so if you haven't already go back and check it out. Okay so let's start with diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. DKA is typically a condition that only really affects type 1 diabetics who have really poorly controlled blood sugar levels. So either they don't realize that they're diabetic yet and they're not taking any insulin or they know they're diabetic but are refusing to take their insulin. I will caveat that and say that it's not exclusively type 1 diabetics that will get DKA. There are very, very rare instances where DKA can occur to type 2 diabetics. We'll get to that a bit later on though. So as a really quick recap, remember that type 1 diabetics suffer from an absolute insulin insufficiency. So they don't produce any insulin whatsoever. And insulin is needed to bring glucose from the blood into body cells to then be broken down by glycolysis or to be stored through glycogen synthesis. And remember that the breakdown of glucose, so glycolysis, is essential for creating ATP. Okay, so back to DKA. The really key thing to remember with DKA is that it has to be initiated by a precipitating event that initiates a sympathetic nervous system response. That's important. So we're talking about things like severe infections, myocardial infarction, trauma, and a very common one is the use of sympathetic drugs. So things like methamphetamine, cocaine, that kind of thing. So if we think about this, a sympathetic response causes fight or flight, right? It wants us to ramp up, to rev up, which means that we want to start burning ATP. But if we think about this, we don't actually have a lot of glucose available to cells to create all that ATP because all that glucose is in the blood and can't be brought into the cell. Now, remember that the body doesn't really care about how much glucose is in the blood. It cares about how much glucose is in the cell. So when it detects that there's no glucose in the cell or there's less glucose than it needs in the cell, it will trigger a response to try to break down sugar stores to release new sugar sugar into the blood in the hope that more sugar in the blood means more sugar will come into the cells. It does this by releasing glucagon. On top of that, the sympathetic response itself is to release adrenaline, noradrenaline, and glucagon, which leads to a cascade of events that will then compound hyperglycemia. Now, if you have a bit of an understanding of the things that cause hyperglycemia in the first place, as I discussed in the diabetes episode, you'll be all over this because it's the exact same processes just ramped up to extreme levels. Glucagon is going to stimulate glycogenolysis, so the breakdown of glycogen into glucose dumped into the blood. It's going to promote lipolysis to free up some glycerol and free fatty acids. It's going to do proteolysis to free up some amino acids. All of that's going to go into gluconeogenesis, which is also stimulated by glucagon, which is going to create new glucose molecules and dump all of that into the blood. So you can see how there's a sudden massive rise in blood sugar level. Remember that this is a response to a sympathetic stimulation. So it is very acute and it's very large. We're talking about blood sugar levels reaching something like 11 millimoles per liter. That's about 200 milligrams per deciliter 
standard for people playing in a different currency. Remember now that glucose is osmotically active, which means it drags water with it wherever it goes. So if there's this huge dump of glucose into my circulation, it's gonna wanna drag water with it. Where does that water come from? It comes from inside my body's cells. So I'm dragging water from inside my cells into my circulation. That water is essential for cellular function. So we end up with a cellular dehydration, which can end up causing stress-induced damage of the cell. To compound all of this, all of that glucose in the blood gets filtered out through our kidneys. The kidneys can't actually hold on to all of that glucose. So as that glucose gets lost in our urine, it drags a ton of water out with it as well, meaning that we end up with a whole body dehydration that will exacerbate cellular dehydration even further. Now, on top of that severe dehydration, actually losing all of this fluid out through urine is causing an absolute fluid loss, which is going to cause a hypovolemia or low blood volume. Hypovolemia will lead to a reduction in venous return, a reduction in preload, a reduction in stroke volume, cardiac output, and eventually blood pressure. The reduction in blood pressure means we have a hypoperfusion of our organs, causing organ ischemia, which will then lead to organ damage. The kidneys in particular are at risk because they're such a highly vascularized organ and they receive so much of the cardiac output that any reduction in cardiac output is going to affect them first. So often what we'll find in DKA is we start to get an acute kidney injury, secondary to hypovolemia. Okay, so let's talk about the ketoacidosis bit. Remember that the sympathetic response is going to release a ton of glucagon and noradrenaline. Both of these are responsible for lipolysis, so the breakdown of triglycerides. Now, this has two different actions here, okay? So the glycerol component of the triglyceride will get released and enter gluconeogenesis and get converted into glucose that gets dumped into the blood. But the other component is the release of a ton of free fatty acids. Now, remembering metabolism, free fatty acids are a secondary fuel source to glucose. In fact, they produce a lot more ATP than glucose will. The only thing is they're harder to break down. So the body preferentially breaks down glucose. Fatty acids will undergo a process called beta oxidation and get converted into acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA is what then goes on to get converted into ATP. Here's the thing though. Acetyl-CoA must be combined with another chemical called oxaloacetate in order to be able to progress down that Krebs cycle and get converted to ATP. There's so much free fatty acid though in this circumstance that all of the oxaloacetate basically gets used up, leaving us with a bunch of excess acetyl-CoA. All of that excess acetyl-CoA gets stacked together by another enzyme to form ketones. Ketones can be really important, particularly in a starvation mode when there's no sugar available because they can cross the blood-brain barrier and provide the brain with something to convert into ATP when sugar is lacking. Fatty acids cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, so the brain can't use those. So ketones can be quite important. In this circumstance, however, there's so much glucose that ketones don't get broken down, so they build up. The thing with ketones, though, is that they are all very slightly acidic. Now, under normal circumstances, any acidity caused by the small amount of ketones that are produced are easily buffered by our bicarbonate system. But in the case of ketoacidosis, when there's so many ketones being produced, our bicarbonate system can't keep up. This means that our pH will drop, causing a ketoacidosis. A really important thing to remember here, though, is that if there is even trace amounts of insulin present, ketogenesis is inhibited, which means no ketones will be produced. This is why you typically will only see diabetic ketoacidosis in the type 1 diabetic patient. Because if you remember, type 1 diabetes involves the destruction of pancreatic beta cells, and so insulin just does not get produced anymore. Whereas type 2 diabetics is an issue with insulin resistance, and therefore they still produce insulin. So they cannot produce ketone bodies and therefore will not become ketoacidotic. The caveat with that though is that certain type 2 diabetics when they're really progressed in their condition and it's been uncontrolled for a very long time can develop fibrosis and hypertrophy of the pancreas which will then cause a problem with insulin production. If that gets to a stage where there is no insulin production they can certainly become ketoacidotic. Okay, let's talk about that electrolyte derangement now. In particular, we talk about low potassium levels, so hypokalemia. With 
diabetic ketoacidotic patients. This happens in a couple of different ways. Let's start with the simplest one, that being osmotic diuresis. So as discussed earlier, we have a huge increase in the volume of urine produced. When we have this big volumetric loss of fluid through urine, it tends to drag potassium with it, thus reducing the amount of potassium in our body, causing a hypokalemia. But the most significant loss occurs because of the acidosis. Acidosis occurs when there is a large amount of positively charged hydrogen ions circulating through the blood. In order to combat acidosis, one of the things that the body does is that it tries to take these hydrogen ions into the body cells out of the blood. This will help with the acidemia. The problem is by taking these positively charged ions into the cell, the inside of the cell becomes too positively charged. So they need to counteract that. To do that, the cell will actually dump some of its own positively charged ions, i.e. potassium, back out of the cell into the bloodstream. What this results in is a cellular hypokalemia. Okay, so that's it for DKA. Let's move on to HHS or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome. Essentially, HHS is an extreme, extreme state of dehydration. And basically, all of the stuff that happens in DKA happens in HHS, with the exception of ketogenesis. So typically, HHS occurs in type 2 diabetic patients who are very, very uncontrolled. So their blood sugars are extremely high and continue to get higher with time. A major difference between HHS and DKA pathophysiology is that HHS does not require that precipitating event that causes a sympathetic reaction. It is a situation where someone doesn't control their sugars, they don't drink enough water, and they end up in this severely dehydrated state for weeks to months as the condition slowly develops. Eventually, blood sugars can get as high as approaching 66 millimoles per liter or about 1,200 milligrams per deciliter. That is enormous. And because of these extremely high blood sugar levels, we start getting that further exacerbation of hyperglycemia because of the depleted intracellular glucose. We get that severe dehydration because of the hypertonicity of the blood and because of osmotic diuresis. We get a milder form of hypokalemia because of osmotic diuresis, dragging potassium out as the patient urinates. And we still get hypovolemia because of that osmotic diuresis, which will then eventually lead to an acute kidney injury, all of which is very similar to DKA. The only difference is DKA needs that precipitating event. HHS, it occurs because of such high blood sugar. As mentioned, ketogenesis does not occur, so there is no ketoacidosis in HHS. The reason for this is it's primarily a issue with type 2 diabetes. So patients will have insulin being produced. Even trace amounts of insulin inhibits ketogenesis. Now, it may seem that DKA is the more severe condition out of the two, but that's not really true. HHS is actually a much sicker patient. The reason for this is the slow, insidious nature of the disease progression. Usually, patients don't realize they have HHS until it's been happening for weeks or months, and suddenly they start developing organ failure or altered mentation. And by that time, they're already extremely sick. Whereas the patient with DKA, because it's such a sudden onset condition, is often treated much quicker and are often able to reverse their condition before any really long-term damage has been done. Okay, let's go over some of the complications and consequences of DKA and HHS. As already discussed, both DKA and HHS can result in organ failure. This is because of cellular dehydration causing cellular damage and also because of hypovolemia causing hypoperfusion and ischemia resulting in necrosis and infarction. Remember that kidneys tend to be the first organ to be affected, so acute kidney injury is something to be mindful of. And altered mentation is also something that is common between the two conditions. So severe dehydration will cause hypoperfusion of the brain, resulting in a loss of cognition or a loss of consciousness. In the case of DKA, the severe acidosis that comes on because of the condition can get in the way of normal neuronal signaling, which also will result in a loss of consciousness. With HHS, lactic acidosis, if it reaches a particular threshold, can do the same thing. Usually though, this is a really slow progression. 
expression, like I said. So it's a buildup of lactic acidosis due to a reduction in perfusion of organs over time, resulting in infarction, the release of lactate, and a metabolic acidosis developing from there. In both cases, electrolyte imbalances can cause altered conscious state and potential for seizure. And finally, the electrolyte derangement, in particular hypokalemia, in both cases, can cause life-threatening arrhythmia. In particular, hypokalemia can cause a significant bradyarrhythmia, which is characterized by a widening QRS complex and a flattening P wave and T wave, which can result in asystole if not reversed quickly. The next few issues tend to be evident only in DKA patients. Koshmol's respirations are a particular pattern of breathing that is rapid and deep and is triggered by respiratory centers in the brainstem to respond to a sudden drop in pH or acidosis. Sticking with breathing, it is often reported that DKA patients will have a fruity smelling breath. This is due to one of the ketone bodies that are produced called acetone. Acetone is the only ketone body that can actually cross the respiratory unit into the alveolus and be breathed out. And we can smell this. If you think of nail polish remover, that's the kind of smell you're looking for. And speaking of ketones, the sheer volume of ketones in the blood will actually get detected by the chemoreceptor trigger zone in the brainstem as well, which is the area of the brain that tries to monitor levels of poisoning and that kind of thing in the body. The CTZ doesn't like this and will stimulate the vomiting centers in the brain, causing nausea and promoting vomiting, which you will very much see in a DKA patient. Finally, severe hypokalemia, such that we can see in DKA, can cause muscle weakness. And in particular, it can cause weakness in the muscles of the gastrointestinal tract, which will slow peristalsis down, which is the movement of food, and cause a thing called an ileus, which is a paralyzed segment of intestine. And this will cause severe abdominal pain in our patients. Another really strong sign of DKA. Okay, guys, that is hypoglycemic crisis. Take it, stick in your pocket, high five someone that you've done it. Please make sure to jump on the paramedicute.com and check out the notes for this topic to try and consolidate your learning. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out some of the other episodes that we have. We have some good ones on asthma, chronic bronchitis, anaphylaxis, the list goes on. Please like and subscribe where you can. We'll see you at the next one.